Thanks, Lannis, and uh, good morning, church. Good morning, moms. This is your day, right? I hope you get spoiled. You surely do deserve it. But uh, this is your day, and we're happy to stand with you. Uh, what a full service it's been. It's already noon, so I probably should just sit down, except I got all dressed up. So why don't we spend a little bit of time looking at the book of Colossians. This is, uh, this is our seventh week. We've been making our way through this book uh, two weeks ago, which is the last time we were in Colossians. You'll recall last Sunday we had that marvelous choir, Uniting Voices, the children's choir from Chicago. Weren't they terrific? Fantastic. But two weeks ago, when we were looking at Colossians, we were focused on this idea of identity. What would it mean to take on the identity of Christ? And we're going to work through some of the practical implications of that idea this morning. Here's the launching off point. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians in chapter 3. Just a couple of verses. Verse 3 and then verse 5. This is just the context. This is where we have been. Paul says, writing to this church in Colossians, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, all those things in you that are earthly or are earthbound. For the next two weeks, we're going to work through the implication of that concept. And here's the key idea, that there's something that you need to set aside or leave behind or take off. It's the old self, the, the false self. And then there's something else that you adopt, that you take on, that you begin to inhabit, and that is a new self. And if that language sounds a little bit confusing, just stay with us for a few minutes, and we'll, we'll make sure it's all clear for you. Let's begin as we pray together. God, would you, would you take these moments in our lives? Uh, would you move freely through this room? God, would you take the words that are spoken and the words that are heard? And use them to do the work you need to do in each of our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Pastor Sheldon confided in us uh, a couple of months back that they have planned a trip to the Grand Canyon this year. And uh, I did a little bit of thinking and, and, and reading some travel logs for, for people who had been there and came across, and it's actually, uh, it's a story that repeats itself more than once. It turns out that there are all these different roads and routes into the canyon, and some of them are better marked than others. And so you get accounts like this one of a family who drove for days to get to the Grand Canyon National Park, and they pull up to the precipice of the canyon, and they hop out, and they kind of look at it and said, well, that's nice enough. They, they snap a few photos, check that one off the bucket list, and then they're on their way. And the whole thing feels maybe just a little bit underwhelming. And then as they're driving away, they come across a series of really large, well-marked signs saying, Grand Canyon National Park ahead. <laughs> well, that's weird. Where had they just been? So they followed the signs. They followed the crowds. They pulled into a, another parking lot, but this one, much bigger, teeming with people. They get out of the car, and this time, the experience, the whole thing is absolutely jaw-dropping. There is just, there are no words to describe the expansive, awe-inspiring work of God. As it turns out, it's possible to go to the wrong Grand Canyon. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fake canyon out there. Avoid that one. <laughs> but I wondered, as I read those sorts of journal entries, what would happen if they'd never saw the sign? If they never made the right turn on their way out of what they thought was the canyon, if they had never made their way to the genuine article, they would have settled 
for something so much less, the, the expansive brilliance of what God had made. The same thing happens with people. We can settle for something so much less, a false identity, a, a fake version of ourselves that isn't even close to the brilliance of the real thing, the thing that God created you to be. You see, God has a vision for your life, for mine, uh, an identity, a sense of self, and, and it's described in language of abundance and goodness. It's flourishing. And too often we settle for something a whole lot less. Today we want to talk about that reality. What happens when you live your life out of a false self, when you're settling for something less? At a funeral yesterday... I think I've had a funeral every Saturday for the past two and a half months. Sheldon and I were talking about this during the course of the week. It's been a hard season in the life of the church. But over the course of 30, 35 years of ministry, we have done hundreds of funerals. Some of them are harder than others. The hardest ones are normally for families that are wrestling through the loss of a loved one who made the choice to end their own life. One of the hardest for me was a a young man 24 years ago. This is going back almost 20 years. A young man whose grandparents and great-grandparents were both a part of our church. And I got to know the parents in this devastating time in their life. And they described their son. They talked about this bright, effervescent personality, brimming with talent and potential. And how in his later teens he fell victim to a series of habits and addictions that eventually overwhelmed him. This was not who he was meant to be. That's what his parents kept saying. This is not who he was meant to be. This is not the life that we had envisioned for him. Maybe some of you understand a little bit of what that's like. Maybe you find yourself exploding on other people in anger or reacting in ways that you know are just off. You find yourself saying, that's not me. That's... That's not who I was meant to be. Maybe you know someone who is stuck in a pattern of behaviors and thoughts that are slowly taking them down, like this, this young man who, who in a fit of, of desperation, overdosed on heroin and fell off his own chair and broke his neck. That's not who he was meant to be. That's not flourishing. When we live out of a false sense of ourself, we are settling for something so much less than what God had in mind for us. But there is good news. I mean, there's, there's good news, at least in the words that those parents in their anguish were able to say. In the middle of inexpressible grief, they kept saying, that's not our son. That's, that's not who he's meant to be. That's not him. That's not you. That's not me. Jesus, whatever else he's about in the world, is trying to draw his people back to God so they discover who we were meant to be. What does life look like in the fullness of God's presence? Flourishing. Jesus is in the, really, the whole business of transforming, of relocating lives, new identity, new purpose, a new you, a whole new self. So let's have a look at Colossians 3. If you don't already have your Bibles open, time to flip them open on your lap or open up your device. We'll have the words up on the screen, but it's always good to have your own Bible there too. Colossians 3, we're going to read a section from verse 5 through to verse 11. 
Starts in verse 5 with the word, therefore. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is adultery. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in all of these ways. This is the false self, the old self. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language coming from your lips. Don't lie to each other. You've taken off your old self with its practices. You've put on the new self. All this is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Because here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all. And Christ is in all. That's it's kind of a thick passage. I mean, weighty. But there are some really, really important lessons here. So if we could, just starting out, let's make a couple of observations. Some of you are listening to that passage and you're thinking, well, there it is. Just what I thought Christianity was about. Another long set of rules, a list of do's and don'ts that lead to judgment and hypocrisy and shame. And I promise you, I, I get it. I, I get it. Sometimes it feels like all that we want to talk about is sin and shame. I, I remember reading the Christian musician who, who reminisced about his days in Sunday school. He had one particularly creative Sunday school teacher who, who baked a set of brownies for a class and handed them out on Sunday morning, and they were eating them together, and there was something off in that very first bite. And they, they pulled the brownie apart and looked inside, and, and into the midst of the brownies, she had baked a bunch of cotton balls. Teacher thought it would be a good way to represent the hidden power of sin in a person's life. Next week, the kids came back. This time, they were given popcorn. But sprinkled in there amongst the popcorn were little pieces of paint chip. (laughs) They probably didn't have a child protection policy in place. But again, highlighting the power, the deceptive power of sin. But Christians, we can get weird when we make sin the sole focus of our reflections. That's not what Paul is doing here in this letter. In fact, it's not what he does in any of his letters. Paul never starts with sin or ethical standards or or relentless rule following. He starts with Christ. In fact, that's all we've been doing for the past six weeks. The opening chapters of Colossians are singularly focused on Christ, on his supremacy, on his forgiveness, on his redemption, on the fullness that comes from living in him. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the center. Amen. And sometimes when you take a passage like this and we lift it out of context, you miss the point. And more than that, you miss the power. So Paul begins this section, verse 5, with the key little word that you ought to underline in your Bible every time you see it. It's the word, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, remember it exists for a reason. It means you better look back before you read any further forward. Everything you're about to read next is built on what was just said before. The reason that Paul lifts out this list and holds it up is saying, you know, this new self, it ought to look different. It's not so that we become holier than thou people or get obsessive around sin or sit in judgment of others. It's because we need to die that we just want to leave all that behind because of who Jesus is and what he can do. 
I mean, here's another way of thinking about it. It's, it's almost like... It's almost like you get put in a witness relocation program, except this is a divine relocation program. And you get issued a new name and a new passport and a new life. But you continue to try and live out of the old life or the old passport, and it places you at tremendous risk, living your life under threat. You're walking around with a dangerous ID and living under the wrong name. We are God's. Capital G-O-D apostrophe. Yes, not, you're not God, but you are God's. You belong to him. He is your creator and your father, and you've taken on his name. That's your identity. And we're going to talk more about what it means to, to take on that new self next week. But for now, I just want to note that, that what Paul is doing here in this little section is so much more than just trying to set out a bunch of rules. What he's actually talking about is probably better described as symptoms. These are symptoms. Some of you will will know that I've been dealing with kind of a painful foot injury for the past few weeks. I've gotten used to walking around with a cane. I don't use it here because I'm prideful. uh, I soak my feet in Epsom salts. I keep them elevated at night. What I haven't gotten used to is not being able to enjoy this weather from, from the seat of a bicycle or on one of our many beautiful hiking trails the way I like. But you know, pain isn't the problem. Pain is the symptom. You can mask the pain. In fact, so much of what we offer up people in society is about masking or deadening pain. We have tons of products to do that. But that doesn't address the cause of the pain. Paul is listing out a series of symptoms Here are the painful symptoms of of a life lived out of a false self. But these point to something deeper going on. There's a deeper pathology. And it's what happens when we fail to embrace our true self, who God made us to be. So what is the false self? I mean, kind of a curious phrase. Sometimes in the Bible, you hear it described as the old self or the earthly self or just the flesh, life in the flesh, but it all points to the same crippling reality. It's what happens when we try and live our lives apart from God. When we try and find fulfillment, acceptance, pleasure, purpose, all on our own. And think for a minute about the story of Adam and Eve. They'd been created by God. They'd been named by God. They'd been given a unique identity in the world. They'd been given a grand purpose. He'd provided them everything they need to thrive and flourish. What happens? The very first case of sin recorded in the Bible is an attempt to live apart from God outside of his goodwill and purpose. They thought they could find wisdom and direction without him. And so you get Genesis 3, this tragic story of humanity living in paradise, named and given this expansive, flourishing existence, but settling for a pomegranate or an apple or name the fruit. And Adam and Eve started living out of this false self, settled for something less. One of my, my professors in seminary days is actually quite a, a well-known writer, author now in the area of Christian counseling. This is what he says. David Benner writes, This false self is the tragic result of trying to steal something from God that we didn't have to steal. Had we dared to trust in God's goodness, we would have discovered that everything we could ever most deeply long for 
would be ours in God. Trying to gain more than the everything God offers, we end up with less than nothing. So Paul lists out the symptoms. What does it look like, this false self, living apart from God, settling for less? He talks about sexual activity. He says we try and fulfill our sexual desires, and when we do it outside of a sacred covenantal relationship, a marriage built on on lifetime commitment, it goes wrong. Instead, we, we settle for using other sons and daughters of God as commodities and objects for our own pleasure. He mentions greed, which is the act of doing whatever I can to do what or to grab and grasp whatever I want, not trusting that God will provide, trying to steal something I didn't have to steal because God's got this. He mentions slander and abusive language and lies. Aren't all these just ways of manipulating and coercing other people to try and get our way? Because we don't trust, we don't believe that God's way is sufficient, that he, again, he's got us and we are safe. They're all symptoms of a false self. Maybe a few questions to, to think about. Let me just float these in front of you. In what ways... Do you think maybe you are trusting in yourself when you ought to be trusting in God's goodness and God's provision? How about this? Can can you identify anything in your life? Symptoms. Paul is listing symptoms. Can you identify any symptoms in your life that might be traced back to this, this idea of living out of an old, earthly, false self? Or put more simply, in what ways do you know you are just settling for something less than what God has for you? See, Paul is insistent here. We need, to, we need to set that aside. We need to cut that off. It's keeping us. It's holding us back from experiencing that full and expansive life that God has for us. So, and I know it's, boy, it's 10 after 12. If you'll give me five, maybe seven minutes, I, I just want to lay out for you Uh, three ideas about how you might begin to do that, to to set aside the false self. Is that okay? Have you got five, seven minutes in you? We got flowers for you afterwards. Yeah? Well, half of you. The other half of you, you can just pretend like you gave them. Uh, I'm going to give you three R's because, well, I, I don't know. Preachers love to use alliteration. But here they are. The first is reveal. The first thing we need to do is reveal what is actually going on in our lives. And listen, we know this. We know how hard it is because it started for us a long time ago. For some of you as kids, certainly for all of us as teenagers. Maybe you were sitting in a church or it happened in a classroom, perhaps at home. And there was someone, a preacher or a teacher or a parent, who began to talk about some of the more destructive habits that, that, that sort of impinge on our lives, these behaviors that we should avoid at all costs. And in that moment, it's like somebody ratcheted up the thermostat to full, and your face turns beet red, and beads of sweat begin to form on your brow, and you're convinced that everybody's looking at you. Why? What are you feeling in that moment? Shame. Shame. Shame is a symptom. Shame is a great diagnostic tool. It points to a problem. It reveals something going on under the surface of our lives. But instead of using it to reveal something about the state of our own heart, that insistent 
presence of an old, a false self, what do we do? We hide. We become really good at hiding. And we learned it from the best. I mean, we learned this from our spiritual parents, from Adam and Eve themselves. You remember what happens in the moment after they were first caught in sin? They turn as red as the apple they were holding. Why? Shame. The immediate reaction is shame. Scriptures say that they had been naked before God, meaning that they lived out of their truest self. They were open and authentic and free, and there was nothing to hide. But in Genesis 3, you get this sad commentary, this depiction of Adam and Eve now hiding themselves away in the bushes. Listen to this little, little account, Genesis 3, 9 and 10. God calls out to the man and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam answered and said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. It's a very human reaction. And it's not the path to healing or to transformation. When we hide our shame, the patterns of sin grow deeper and stronger in our lives. If you want to lay aside that false self, it requires an amount of courage in revealing in revealing those things in your life that have fallen apart, those mistakes. We reveal, we come out of hiding. There's a... There's an author out there, incredibly popular, like a perennial bestseller with every book she releases. Brene Brown, have you seen her displays at chapters? Brene Brown has probably done more research on the subject of shame than anyone in our generation. And she says that what shame really does is unravels connections. Listen to what she says. She writes, shame unravels our connection to others. In fact, I often refer to shame as the fear of disconnection. The fear that I'll be perceived as flawed and unworthy of acceptance or belonging. And so shame keeps us from being honest and telling our own stories. It prevents us from really listening to others. And we silence our voices and we keep secrets out of fear of disconnection. In the end, she said, shame only breeds three things. Fear and blame and disconnection. have to let ourselves be seen, really seen, come out from hiding in the bushes, to, lo- to live in, in a kind of loving union with God means fighting against the natural urges to hide what's really going on in our lives, the issues, the habits, the desires, the baggage. We reveal these things to God, and here's the terrifying part. You need to reveal them to other people. And that's all I know. That's, that's frightening. But that's where accountability lies. Shame is the way of the false self. Revealing is the way to truth. Those who've been around the church for a long time may have heard descriptions like this, that that we are the church of the open stain. Meaning we are not afraid to be honest about the places in our lives that are broken because we know that's where God needs to show up most effectively. We like to say things like the church is a hotel, or not a hotel for saints. It's a, it's a hospital for sinners. We say it. Do we believe it? First step, you reveal that stuff before God and in the bounds of a trusted community. Shame is the way of the false self. Revealing is the way to truth. You reveal, and then second R, you release. 
What usually happens when you become aware of some area of sin operating out of the false self? You clench your fists and you say, I'll do better. (laughs) I'll wake up tomorrow. I'll do better next time. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that rationale. But if that's all that you do, let's be honest. How often does the willpower approach alone get it done? Not a lot. Not a lot. Many of you know the the fiction writings of C.S. Lewis, perennial favorite. Uh, particularly uh, his children's books, Chronicles of Narnia and such. My, my favorite was the, the second of the series, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that book, there's a curious little character named Eustace. And C.S. Lewis, I mean, he has so many great lines, but I, one of my favorite lines is his description of Eustace. He says simply this, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> you get it? Eustace is a brat. I mean, he's selfish and whiny and hard to be around. And at one point, Eustace greedily tries to take a bunch of treasure that wasn't his. And he turns into a dragon, which really is just a a, a depiction of, of how he'd been acting and living in draconian ways. And at first, Eustace tries to peel the scales off by himself, but, but it's not working. And then Aslan the lion appears. If you've read Narnia, you know Aslan is, is a type, is a, an archetype or metaphor for, for Jesus. Aslan appears and leads him out to a fresh water spring, to a well. And this is how Lewis describes that scene. Then the lion said, but I don't know if he, if he actually spoke. He said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. Transformation will never be achieved only through your own willpower and strength. It comes from release. From allowing God to work in our lives. Remember, it's This is the work of Jesus. Jesus who was raised to new life in order to raise us to new life. I tell you, I promise, there is a group of people who know this better than anyone else in our city, and they are huddled together in little clusters and church basements every weeknight of the year. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, they recite faithfully and vigilantly the first two steps to their healing. Step one, you admit that you are powerless. Your life is a train wreck. And step two, this is the important one, you hold fast to the belief that there is a power greater than you and it can restore you. We are powerless, but there is one greater and he has limitless power. So first we reveal, then we release, and ultimately, here's the third R, we repent. And I know the word repent comes with all kinds of churchy baggage, but at its core, repent simply means a turning. You turn from one direction to another. Those misguided travelers who went to the the fake canyon, eventually they repented and they found the real thing and it was grand and beautiful. Repentance is a change of direction. You know, one of the most beautiful, legendary stories that Jesus tells, he speaks of a son and a father. A son who lives in loving union with his father. But one day, for whatever reason, who can understand the minds of our children let alone our own. 
The son asks early for his inheritance. Just a terrible act of disrespect. Decides he's going to strike out on his own and leave his family behind. In short order, he squanders all the inheritance and you see him on his knees, bent over a pig trough, surviving on scraps and slop that were meant for the swine. And you can imagine, it's so visceral, what it must have been like to be the son. Not long ago, he had everything that he needed through the care of his father. Now here he is, mired in the muck, subsisting on pig slop. I mean, the, the, the visual, the, the, the auditory, the, the sensory reminders of his shame, the smell of manure and rotting food, the sound of grunting animals, it was all around him. You can imagine the son thinking he'd given up his birthright for this. He has settled for so much less. And in that moment, he has a choice. God grant that kind of moment to all of us. He has a choice. He can decide that he will continue this life, walking apart from his father, trying to fulfill his own desires, trying badly to do it all on his own, or he can turn his life around, repent, change directions, and go back. That's what he does. He repents, he He begins that long journey back home. And we know what's coming next, right? Because we know that Christianity is all about rules and do's and don'ts and judgment and shame. We know the Father is going to really lay into him with harsh words and a well-deserved beating. More shame, more anger. Except that's not what's happening. That's what's so incredibly memorable and surprising and unexpected about the father's reaction. Not only does he not do that, just the opposite. In a stunning act of grace, the father disgraces himself in a way that no self-respecting Jewish man would ever have done in that day. He hikes up his garments and he runs right out to the end of the lane and he meets his son. He doesn't stop there. He enfolds him in an embrace and he lifts him up and kisses him. Extravagant love. But the son is still ashamed. And so he goes through the speech he'd been rehearsing the whole way home. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, he says. I've lost my identity. I've dishonored your name. What's the father going to say in response? Here's what he says. Get the fattened calf. The one we've been saving for the best occasion. We're going to have a party tonight, a celebration. It's a feast. My son was lost. Now he's home. Can you imagine yourself in the place of the son? In the presence of a father who has pulled out all the stops. Now the prodigal son is the honored guest at a banquet prepared in his name. Imagine eating this delicious meal. Not too long ago, you were, you were barely surviving on scraps. Settling for so much less. Now here he is back in loving union with his heavenly father. Feasting on the extravagant meal and the even more extravagant acceptance of his father. It's the choice God sets in front of us. What will your life be? A plate of scraps? Or a father's feast? Really, God has given us not just a new name, not just a new purpose, not just a new identity, but a whole new reality. I 
I pray for, for myself, for you, for all of us, that we could find the courage to let go of that false self. To find the Father who runs and embraces and welcomes and receives. Maybe we, we just refuse to hide ourselves in shame. Be courageous enough to, to reveal the stains and the stuff that's going on in our life with real vulnerability before God and before God's people because that has the power to transform. May we admit our own powerlessness, release our sins to him as sons and daughters of the king, and refuse to settle for less than his abundant goodness. May we turn from all of those roads that are going to lead us away from Christ and repent and return to loving union with God. Let me pray for us as we do that. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, for those who are watching online, pray for my own life. I pray that those pieces of our life that, that we know we're trying to live apart from you, God, that we could confront them honestly and release and not be afraid to change. Jesus, we don't want to just heap shame onto ourselves or each other, but instead I pray, Lord, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of the vision that you have for our lives, a vision built on grace. We want wholeness, God. We want to flourish. We want to be part of your kingdom. We, we want to seize and enjoy the vision for our lives and move past all the old patterns and old habits that take us from you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for looking upon us with love. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.